This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. Millions of Americans suffer with irritable bowel syndrome and other bowel and gastrointestinal problems. More than 50,000 Americans die of colon cancer each year. Increasing numbers of nurse practitioners are specializing today, and one such specialty is gastroenterology. With me today is nurse practitioner Dr. Julia Palantino from Tallahassee, Florida, who's a gastrointestinal specialty nurse practitioner. And we're discussing gastrointestinal challenges in clinical practice, focusing on pearls for busy primary care clinicians. Hello, Julia. Welcome to ReachMD. Hello, Mimi. It's a pleasure to join you today. So what attracted you? What drew you into the specialty of gastroenterology? Well, actually, Mimi, gastroenterology found me. I graduated from my nurse practitioner program in an area where there were a lot of new nurse practitioners, and I didn't think I could be too picky about the jobs I took, so I applied for a gastroenterology practice advertisement. They took me, and I decided to give it a try. I can tell you that initially I thought I might be bored because it was just one area of healthcare instead of the family practice background that I'd come from. But I learned very quickly that I had to stay constantly busy just trying to keep up with just one area of medical practice. It gives me a great deal of respect for those nurse practitioners who do family practice every day and have to stay on top of so many different areas. But I really enjoy gastroenterology. That's great. What do nurse practitioners do in the gastroenterology specialty area? Basically, I do everything the gastroenterologist does except for endoscopy. Some nurse practitioners actually do endoscopy as well, but I think that's the exception rather than the rule. I did train to do flexible sigmoidoscopy, but ultimately decided that I would prefer to focus on direct patient care, and I don't do flexible sigmoidoscopy. And what are the most common conditions you see in your everyday practice? Every day I'd say I see gastroesophageal reflux disease, the common GERD, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic abdominal pain, and different types of bowel irregularity, diarrhea, constipation. And of course, I'm the first stop on the way to colonoscopy. What percent of Americans have gastrointestinal problems? I'm just curious. It seems well, high. Well, actually, I think almost 100%. <laughs> I don't think I can mm-hmm. give you a research number, but I can tell you that GERD in particular occurs in something like two-thirds of our population at some time or another in their life. Mm-hmm. And everybody, once they get to turn 50, needs to have a colonoscopy. So I see, should be seeing 100% of those. How do you convince your patients who are colonoscopy-phobic to do the appropriate screening colonoscopy? Well, I certainly come across those kind of patients. And first of all, I try to educate them. It doesn't always work. And despite all of the public service announcements that tell people colon cancer is a painless condition until it's too late, it's very hard to get patients to believe that. They still come in telling me, well, if there was something wrong, I'd know it. So I then talk with them about what is the reason they're so reluctant to do their colonoscopy. Typically, it's the prep. And so I try to convince them things that they can do to make the prep easier. Oftentimes, they're embarrassed about the procedure. We talk about the amount of discretion. I mean, that there's very little exposure during a colonoscopy procedure. And I just try to get to the bottom of their objections and overcome them. Do you have a particular condition or type of patient that you particularly like to manage? Well, I find treating irritable bowel syndrome to be very challenging. And along with a challenge comes reward when you're successful. Irritable bowel syndrome is a multifactorial disease, and there's a lot of emotional component in this condition as well. So I do find it challenging, and I do enjoy treating irritable bowel syndrome patients. 
How about your second most favorite? I have to say my second most favorite thing is uh, treating patients with hepatitis C, getting them through the very challenging treatment that will ultimately resolve their disease and give them the, quote, cure that they're looking for. It's tough, and they need a lot of hand-holding and support as they go through it. And when they're successful, there's nothing better than this. I have a friend who died from colon cancer, and she was at least 65 years old, and she was initially treated for the presumptive diagnosis of irritable bowel and had a past history of polyps. And I'm just wondering about when we should really be referring patients to someone like you, Julia, when we should have our radar up more. Well, you gave me a couple of very strong clues there, Mimi. A patient over 50 who's had polyps in the past, who is having symptoms associated with irritable bowel, I think that person should be referred for colonoscopy. We definitely look at alarm symptoms. Anybody with blood in their stool, anemia, unexplained weight loss, abdominal pain that occurs at night because irritable bowel syndrome pain does not typically occur at night, any changes in their bowel habits. A person with polyps definitely should have been referred. What is one clinical practice pearl that you'd like to share with primary care clinicians in the audience? Obviously, you've already shared some, but how about some others? Well, I have a bunch. I like to talk about some things I've seen done in family practice that I certainly understand it happening, but I can help maybe prevent it in the future. I treat a lot of patients for helicobacter pylori. You know, we do that uh, Mm -hmm. multi-triple antibiotic treatment. And initially, Mm -hmm. they've been diagnosed in family practice, and they've had a serum test. They get treated by me, and then they go back to family practice, and for some reason, they're having some more symptoms, and they do another serum test. I need to tell you that the serum test is always going to be positive. I've seen patients treated two and three times for H. pylori because their serum test was positive. You can't use a serum test after a patient has had and been treated for H. pylori. Thereafter, you've got to use either breath testing or fecal stool testing for H. pylori. And when you do that, then you'll get a really correct analysis and know whether or not there really is a return of a condition. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Dr. Julia Palantino from Tallahassee, Florida, about clinical challenges and advances in gastroenterology. So that, that's a very important point that helps primary care clinicians. Thank you, Julia. How about another clinical pearl that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, Mimi, I mentioned before that I see a lot of patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease, and frequently when I see those patients, they've already been put on a proton pump inhibitor to help treat their disease, but often they've been either failed to be given directions on how to take the medication, or they've been told to take it at night before they go to bed. Proton pump inhibitors work best taken before a meal on an empty stomach with about a 30-minute to an hour wait before you eat food. This can be challenging, but they'll get a lot more effect and get more results from their medicine when they do that. There is one uh, newer proton pump inhibitor, dexlanzoprazole, that says that they do not have to be taken with respect to food, but even that one says when you're not having full success, then try taking it before food. You may get a little extra boost there. I'd recommend that your patients be instructed to take their GERD medicine before food. Great suggestion. Thank you. What about differentiating irritable bowel syndrome from colon cancer, Julia? Well, as I said, I think that you need to be looking out for, first of all, is a patient over 50 and have they had a colonoscopy? If they're over 50 and they haven't, then they definitely need to have one. That's just screening. But some of the other things we look for are those alarm symptoms. Blood in their stool, 
anemia, unexplained weight loss, abdominal pain occurring at night because that IBS pain does not typically occur at night, and changes in their bowel habits. Often patients come to me and say something's just not right. In that case, referral with probable colonoscopy is the appropriate thing to do. Do you have any suggestions for busy primary care clinicians regarding the management of abnormal liver tests? We're just overwhelmed with labs these days. Liver tests can be a real challenge because you see a very small elevation in the liver studies and you think, well, that's probably not important. Maybe they had some alcohol, you know, something like that. I recommend that even a single elevation liver function test is a warning signal and you need to get to the bottom of it. Certainly, one of the things you want to do is that hepatitis testing to rule out hepatitis B and C because of those can be some of the most common causes for it. But after that, if you see a continued elevation for even a second time, I really think referral to GI is appropriate so we can get to the bottom of what this elevation is about. A gastroenterology practice is going to do a complete panoply of tests, including ruling out genetic and autoimmune disease, and often the culprit is fatty liver. But it's important to know Mm. what you're dealing with. Don't you think there's a reluctance sometimes to refer to GI and to specialists, particularly as we look at, you know, capitated care and the medical home model evolving? I do see that, but liver tests in particular, I think, are one area where you could want to do that. However, if in family practice, and certainly some family practices don't even have the option of referring to GI, there are some great articles put out by the American Family Practice Association on handling abnormal liver functions. What does an elevated hepatitis B surface antibody result mean? Hepatitis B surface antibody means that you have immunity to hepatitis B, most commonly nowadays because you've had immunizations, but it also could occur because you were exposed to hepatitis B and you recovered, as most people do. A hepatitis B antibody is simply meaning that you have immunity. That differs from the hepatitis B surface antigen, and I have to tell you that hepatitis B testing is challenging even for the GI specialist. So if you have some questions, you might want to even just call and speak with someone at the office to clarify or refer when appropriate. What do other elevated liver study abnormalities mean, Julia? Well, another one that I've seen frequently is a mild elevation in bilirubin. Typically, it goes about 1.6 or under 2, And if you break out between direct and indirect bilirubin, you will find that it's the indirect bilirubin that's elevated. And this occurs in a very common condition called Gilbert's syndrome. And it is a benign genetic disease where there's a gene abnormality that causes a very small increase in bilirubin. And I see this one frequently. What labs do you recommend be checked after a patient with hepatitis C has been, in quotes, cured with treatment? I'm glad you brought this one up, Mimi, because once a person has had hepatitis C, the hepatitis C antibody test, which is usually the first test we always do, is going to be positive for the rest of their life, even if they've been treated and been cured. So I've had cured patients go back into family practice. Regular labs have been done. For some reason, they want to check and make sure everything's okay with hepatitis C because of the treatment, and they get a positive antibody test get referred back to me, and not only that, but the patient is terrified because they've been through quite a treatment. They certainly don't want their disease to come back. That hepatitis C antibody test means only that they have made the antibody to hepatitis C and they will have it forever. The test that will tell you, do you still have hepatitis C, is a hepatitis quantitative or viral load testing. How are you managing your GERD patients who are taking Plavix? 
Well, Plavix has given us some real problems, as you can imagine. Uh, a lot of my patients who were on proton pump inhibitors were heart patients taking Plavix, and then we see the study that came out that said that the proton pump inhibitors may interfere with the effectiveness of Plavix and decrease its effectiveness and increase the risk for stroke or a cardiac event. So millions of patients have been taken off their proton pump inhibitors because of this, and you can imagine that they're not very happy. I tell mm-hmm. my patients, you can die from heart condition, you're, not, you're going to just be miserable with your reflux and your heartburn for the most part. Mm-hmm. Typically, I recommend the H2 blockers, but I do shy away from Tagamet because it is also a cytochrome P219, and that's the problem here. Blocker. I also recommend lifestyle management, changing their diet and things like that. There is a new consensus statement that says when a patient's risk for GI bleed is high, that the risk of using the proton pump inhibitors may outweigh the risk of the Plavix interaction. So if you've got a patient who's at high risk for GI bleed, and that may be a decision you want to have a specialist make, you may want to do that. I generally leave the decision these days up to their cardiologist. If their cardiologist says it's okay, then I will do it. But other than that, I don't do it. Can you share a little bit about your special ideas for managing patients with continuing diarrhea, particularly after cholecystectomy, Julia, as we sort of finish up here? I see a lot of patients come in after their gallbladder has been taken out, and they are having a particular type of diarrhea. And that diarrhea, if you ask them questions, is urgent. It occurs 10 to 30 minutes after a meal, and it's explosive. It really changes and affects their quality of life. They simply find it is worse if they go out to a restaurant because there's more fat in the food in a restaurant than you're going to probably fix at home. And the important thing to remember is this doesn't always occur only with patients who've had their gallbladder removed. It can occur in patients who have gallbladders intact. So when you see that particular type of patient, there is something you can do for them, and that is you can use a bile sequestrant. Those are medications like Questran, Cosalavam, which is also Wellcall, or um, Colested. All of those will help reduce that bile-induced diarrhea and return your patient's quality of life. I think I have more patients think that I'm wonderful because of this one medication (laughs) than anything I've ever done. And what they need to do is simply adjust the dose so that they control their diarrhea and they don't have constipation, which can be a side Mm. effect. And we usually work with titrating that dose anywhere between two tablets a day and four to six tablets a day. Thank you so much, Dr. Julia Palantino, for sharing your expertise with us today. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Mimi. It's been a pleasure for me as well. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.